Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week we're joined by Tim Shipman, who is the political editor of the Sunday Times. He's also the author of two absolutely must-read books. One about the inside story of Brexit, the other the inside story of the last general election. As it says on the back of the second one, Tim Shipman is the guy you go to if you want to find out what's been going on. And the person who said that was George Osborne. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. We're at the Cambridge Literary Festival, where Tim has just been talking about the general election and a lot else too. The first book, All Out War, which is about Brexit all the way through, so the decision to have the referendum, the campaign, the unbelievably bloody aftermath. And I think, Tim, that anyone who's read it, it's quite hard to get out of your mind. Your account of the few days when Boris Johnson stopped being the next leader of the party, Michael Gove knifed him, through to Leadsom and May. And when you read it, you kind of feel like there's so much bad blood here. These people are never going to be able to put it back together. And you, you do talk to everyone, and including some of the spouses and other people. Mrs. Gove plays a role in that. And it just feels absolutely poisonous, to be honest. And now, <laughs> as of now, they're all still in the cabinet together. And it's quite hard to put those two things together. I mean, how much of that bad blood is still there? There's some. I mean, what you, what the listeners can't hear is, as you were describing all that, a smile playing around my wicked journalistic lips as I contemplate that week which is probably the most extraordinary, I think, in British politics since May 1940. And as someone who was at the heart of that and knew all the key players, I don't think I'll ever see anything quite like that again. I thought covering Barack Obama's sort of first presidential election victory would be the high point. But knowing Boris Johnson and Michael Gove relatively well and watching that car crash unfold was quite something. But as you say, yes, they're all still there. Boris and Michael are on much better terms than they were back in those days. And they're all still mildly disparaging about Andrew Leadsom, who remains in the Cabinet too. But Theresa May, you know, is still Prime Minister. She survived all of that. She tiptoed her way through that wreckage that is described in that first book. And part of the reason she did so is because everybody else had, had killed everybody else. After the general election, the wreckage had been caused by Theresa May this time, but there was still no agreement amongst that group of people who'd been fighting as to who should take over, so she still survives as a consequence. And I think all the people who looked at Theresa May and thought, well, she's sort of the best of a bad lot, serve in her cabinet and have come to respect her for ploughing on through in a way that they didn't manage to do. You know, arguably... There are other people in the Cabinet who are better politicians or more talented policy thinkers than the current Prime Minister. But they all made a horlicks of it when it mattered. Politics is about big moments and about making the right decisions, about having the judgment and about positioning yourself effectively to take advantage of them. And let's be frank, all the boys made a mess of it and Theresa May 
through sort of diligence and determination and an unshowy ability to get on with things, survived that wreckage and has survived all the wreckage since. There is sometimes this view about the Tory party that they do the bloodletting more viciously and in some ways more efficiently than anyone else. Um, They get rid of their leaders, Labour famously never does. When it's happening, it looks like carnage. But they get over it quicker. I mean, Labour, these are kind of deep-seated, ideological, slow-burn grievances and grudges that can last a lifetime. And the Tories, I don't know if this is true or not, it's particularly around Brexit, but because it's less ideological in many ways, though they're quite capable of knifing each other, actually then two years later they can work together. And it is one of the big differences between the two parties. Is that is that right? Yes, I think that's true to some extent, though I think Brexit has created more divisions on an ideological basis than there have usually been in the Conservative Party. Though I think primarily they're between the Cabinet and the people not in the Cabinet, the sort of hardliners under Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yes, there are divisions within the Cabinet which have become sometimes toxic and unpleasant. Boris Johnson at the head of the sort of one group of ultras and Philip Hammond at the group of sort of ultra-Remainers. But ultimately, they've all gone along with the same policy. They've all signed up to the speeches that Theresa May has made and they've all signed up to the compromises that were made in December and again in January over the, the thrust of the Brexit negotiations. They do get over it quicker. You know, Boris Johnson and David Cameron were hobnobbing at a funeral only a few short months after Boris had effectively ended Cameron's career. I have seen Michael Gove and Boris Johnson deep in conversation at parties in recent weeks in a way that you wouldn't have expected after that extraordinary week in which Gove knifed Johnson. But they get over it, they get on with it, but that doesn't mean they won't do more bloodletting again in the future. Hobnobbing at a funeral is a great phrase to describe the Conservative Party. When Gove did it, at the time, I mean, people were completely astonished, and they were astonished by the betrayal. And then he was surprisingly honest in his justification for it, in which he said, basically came to the conclusion almost overnight, maybe with a bit of help from his wife, that Boris couldn't lead the country, that he didn't have any faith anymore in him as a Prime Minister, and he thought he might do it better himself. And at the time, people mocked that. Do you think there's any sense now that people inside the Conservative Party, including close to the top, think that Gove was right? I mean, there is that feeling that maybe he did save us from someone who isn't cut out to be Prime Minister, and even maybe he's right that he might be better. Well, I think there are two sides to this. I think uh, the view that Boris Johnson was not the right Prime Minister is a fairly widely held view in the Conservative Party and I think they agree with the reasons that Gove ultimately cited for that and Johnson's performance as Foreign Secretary has not been as good as his supporters would have hoped. They felt that was an opportunity for him to do a big job and show that he was a serious politician and he has not quite avoided the temptations to make it not so. The second part of it though is do the Conservative Party yet think that Michael Gove is an acceptable leader because of the way he behaved. There's still quite a lot of persuading to do on that front. But at the same time, do most people in the party look at the current cabinet and say who's doing a good job, who's actually doing anything interesting, who's actually driving policy? Well, Michael Gove has turned the least interesting department in government, the Department for the Environment, into the most interesting department in government. And if you're looking for an alternative leader in future who has a Conservative philosophy, understands how to turn that into retail policies that are understood and perhaps even liked by wider proportions of the electorate than they've been recently attracting, then they look at Gove and think that he's obviously a contender. 
we're speaking on Sunday morning, you have a story in your paper today about Michael Gove and Ruth Davidson being tasked with the challenging problem of bringing young people back into the Conservative Party. And young now means really under 45. It doesn't mean 18 to 24-year-olds. It means all those people who voted for Corbyn at the election. It's an unusual alliance, Gove and Ruth Davidson, and Michael Gove as the person who somehow has his finger on the pulse of young people. But it is striking that it's those two. Yeah, I think it would have been regarded as extraordinary a while ago. I think it's fair to say that Ruth Davidson takes a dimmer view of Boris Johnson than she ever did of Michael Gove. But this is the second time in two months that they have joined forces. Gove and, and Davidson both wrote a, a letter defending the fishermen in the Brexit negotiations a little while ago. And people across the party, I think, however much they like or dislike them, would say that they're probably the sort of cleverest of the Brexiteers and the cleverest of the Remainers in the party in terms of knowing how to appeal outside of traditional Tory voters. And what Gove has successfully done in the Department of the Environment is start talking about animal rights, start doing things on plastics that have cut through, have got on the television and have made some people under the age of 50 look slightly differently at the Tory party. Now, I think most people don't think that he's just done that for the love of animals, that part of that is a a Michael Gove redemption project, but at the same time, it's undeniably interesting. And I think some people look at those two and think, what an interesting little combination that might be. And we don't know when the next leadership election will take place. My own view is that if it happens in the next 18 months, I think we're looking at a fairly limited number of big beasts. But if, as a number of people are beginning to say, well, look, Theresa May is doing Brexit, and Brexit doesn't really finish in the spring of 2019. It finishes at at the end of 2020. If that's your timescale for a leadership contest, and you're talking about the spring of 2021, then Ruth Davidson is in play because the Scottish elections will take place that year, in which most people assume she won't become First Minister, but will have put up a decent show. Michael Gove by then may have been successful in making people feel slightly more warmly towards him, both within and outside the party. And both could be quite interesting propositions. And together, they might be almost unstoppable. The other scenario that's often floated is that post-Brexit, the Tory party will need a complete kind of generational renewal because these people have been around for a while and there is all that bad blood between them. And no one knows who the names are. These different names keep popping up all the time. But do you have a sense that that still is the likelier outcome, that if she does last longer rather than shorter period of time, they will skip a generation? I think that's entirely possible if if it goes long, but the counterpoint to that is that if you're going to present yourself as a proposition immediately being Prime Minister, then you need some experience under your belt. And Theresa May's reshuffle in January went out of its way to make sure that Tom Tugendhat, Dominic Raab, who are seen as probably the two brightest sparks of the generation did not get meaningful promotions that put them in a position to challenge in two years' time. The dark horse that a lot of people sort of think is interesting is a chap called Rishi Sunak who replaced William Hague in the Richmond seat in Yorkshire. He got a very junior ministerial post in the local government department. Again, he's not exactly on the fast track there, but people see he's got a decent backstory and a a very good policy brain and you know like a lot of people wouldn't be uninterested in the job so there is some talent coming through the question is will it be ready in time a lot of people think if you're going to take on Jeremy Corbyn and offer something different at the next election you need a bit of time to have a run at it and, and giving people nine months to a year at the end may not be enough time to establish them in the public mind and have them achieve anything meaningful ahead of that election because if you go into that election with promises up against Corbyn's promises, a lot of Tories think 
that's not good enough. You need some delivery to put up against Labour's promises. So if I go back to the question I asked a few minutes ago, the inverse of it. So the Tories knife each other, the blood is spilt, they make it up. Labour never gets rid of its leaders, ever. We know that. I mean, they did eventually with Blair, but it took them a long time. They never did with Brown. But the deep-seated ideological divisions simmer on. So Corbyn now looks pretty secure. He's got control of the party and the party machine. But the divisions in the parliamentary party have not gone away, and we've seen that recently around anti-Semitism and other things. And they will simmer on. Is there a possibility that, though the Tories get rid of their leaders, they come together when it matters, that Labour could still divide? They're not going to split, but those divisions could come back to the surface in the parliamentary party. Well, I think they're constantly simmering just below the surface, but I totally agree with your analysis. It's So far, nothing has happened. I mean... In conventional political terms, the Labour moderates ran a very effective coup against Jeremy Corbyn. I think 67 of his front benchers resigned and 160-odd of his MPs said he wasn't fit to be the leader of the party. And Corbyn just turned around and said, I've got a mandate from the membership. That has not changed, and the moderates now know that. They are defeated not just in terms of the shadow cabinet, where they're now in irrelevance, they have lost control of the NEC, they've lost control of party headquarters, and they mutter about forming separate factions in the Commons and forming new parties. But none of those things have happened. A lot of Labour people are very tribal. They have been less willing to sort of consider new things than a lot of voters would like, and I don't see that changing. We talked on this podcast last week about the third party option and whether it's possible, and I think we concluded it's very unlikely Do you see, I mean, you talk to these people all the time. You must hear people talking about it all the time. Do you see any prospect in the short term that something will change around that? Or is it just going to be talk? I think it's a lot of talk. I mean, I frankly find it confusing why something more hasn't happened, particularly from people who want to stop Brexit or to cause real ructions there. They have a pretty narrow window to achieve anything in. And the way to excite the media around the stop Brexit argument would be to put it in the vessel of a new party and have you know, a media frenzy around those arguments. But that doesn't look like it's going to happen. And the, the politicians that are willing to get involved in a proposition like that are people who have had their day and are over the hill. Most of the ones who are talking about it behind the scenes have not yet found the nerve to do it, as one of the people involved in it said to me quite recently. We've got all the money you could want, we've got all the organisation you could ever need. The only problem is we haven't got any politicians, and it's quite difficult to have a new party without enough politicians signed up to join it. And they need to be live, existing politicians. And to really achieve something in Parliament, you would need more seats than the SNP have, because that gets you two questions at Prime Minister's Questions every week. So you need 36, 37 MPs, and without that, it's difficult to see how it could get off the ground very quickly. The the two names that always come up, the two princes across the water, one bigger bit of water than the other, one is Macron in France, the other is David Miliband in New York. Those two names are always somehow linked in these stories. Macron shows it's possible, though he doesn't show it's possible here, he shows it's possible in France. And then Miliband is always somewhere on the edge of these stories as the person who might, if he were to come back, make the difference. Do you buy either of those? Well, I certainly buy that there's a lot of people dreaming of a British Macron, but I think if they think it's David Miliband, they've got another thing coming. I mean, Macron grabbed his opportunity with both hands, created a new movement, charged at it and won a a huge election victory. Most Labour MPs look at David Miliband and remember a guy who had probably three opportunities to grasp the nettle and oust Gordon Brown and 
chose to accept none of them, who lost a leadership contest against his own brother when he needed to persuade four of his colleagues to give him his second preference vote and didn't bother to phone most of them, and spent quite a lot of his time at parties peering over their shoulders and wondering whether there was someone more interesting to talk to. So if you talk to Labour MPs, there are some who dream of David Miliband, and there are, but the vast majority have a why David Miliband was rude to me story, and that's not really the basis for for strolling back from New York and either taking over the Labour Party or creating something new. As someone on the Labour front bench said to me, you know, if David Miliband is the answer, they're asking the wrong question. He intervenes in the sense that he says things from New York, and one recently was that we should be pushing for, we, people like him, should be pushing for a second referendum, which seems to me very, very unlikely. So if we go back to the Brexit story, do you see the possibility of there being, from where we are now, real political barriers in the way of Brexit becoming a reality? Well, there's a new campaign launching, in fact, today, where nine of the sort of anti-Brexit groups are getting together and campaigning for what they call a people's vote. Interestingly enough, my understanding is that their polling shows that if you talk about a second referendum, that immediately puts voters' backs up and they, they think that that's an attempt to undermine democracy. If you talk about a people's vote, it becomes much more popular, though it amounts to the same thing. But I don't think even they entertain huge prospects of success. This will all come to a head in the autumn and clearly there's going to be a big crunch in Parliament where Theresa May may be forced to adopt a Brexit that she does not wish to adopt. But that's very different from stopping it altogether. And if you look at the arithmetic in Parliament where the sort of Remain crew are very excited by 15 to 20 Tory rebels who might vote with the Labour front bench. But none of them seems to want to vote to actually stop it beyond Ken Clark and possibly Anna Subri. If you talk to someone like Nikki Morgan, she's not saying we should stop Brexit. And quite a lot of the other people who assume to be sort of anti-Brexit people are also saying, you know, this is a done deal. It's now about what sort of Brexit we have rather than whether we have one at all. The thing that's striking at the moment is that there is obviously a huge focus on how it's going to happen. There is almost no politician who's articulating a clear vision of a post Brexit Britain. I mean, one that actually seems to have some resonance outside of the minutiae of how it gets done and how the parliamentary arithmetic works. Do you meet people, do you talk to people in either party who you sense, when the opportunity arises, can articulate something like that, a vision of Britain over the next five, ten years, not over the next five, ten months? I think it's quite difficult because we don't know exactly where we're going to be and the people who have attempted to do that have not done it very successfully. I mean, Theresa May is not renowned as an inspirational and visionary politician. She has not, in any of her big speeches, made a very decent fist of that. She did it a little bit better in the most recent one at Mansion House. There was an attempt to throw it forward. But I think it's quite striking, going back to Boris Johnson, the guy who's supposed to have the big positive vision of you know, an open Brexit future, when he did his much-heralded speech, I think most people thought it was a bit of a dog's breakfast. He spent as much time making jokes about sex tourism to Thailand as he did outlining a positive vision of where we need to be. I think there will be younger MPs in the Conservative Party who will attempt to try and answer that question more coherently. But at the moment, I haven't come across any that have uh, offered a vision that would appear to be compelling to people outside the Westminster village. And Corbyn's vision, he is more interested in other things, no question. He's more exercised by what's going on in Syria this week, probably, than he is 
by Brexit. But when it comes to the crunch, most people still assume that his instinct is that he would rather Brexit than not Brexit. And the reason he would rather is simply because he's always believed that the kind of government that he would like to lead needs a free hand. And it particularly needs to be free of the kind of regulation that you get from Brussels. Is that your sense of it still? I mean, people like Keir Starmer obviously are trying to, as they see it, educate him. Has he been educated? I'm not sure he's been educated. I think he's been manoeuvred a little bit. Keir Starmer has successfully taken Labour from a position of no customs union to let's stay in the customs union during a transition period to now let's have an end state customs union. So that shows that Starmer has gone from being a lawyer to being a bit of a politician, and he's done that quite successfully. But the bottom line for Corbyn's wing of the party, and this is particularly true for John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, is that they don't want to be in the single market which is a distinction that's important, because in the single market you are bound by all sorts of rules on state spending and state intervention, which would tie the hands of a Corbyn government successfully. And it is very telling, if you go back to Theresa May's Mansion House speech, this is a Prime Minister and a Cabinet that is saying, we must have the ability to diverge from the European Union, and that's what they're demanding from Brussels. But in her speech, she said there is one area where we will not diverge at all and we will remain in perpetuity in total alignment with the European Union. And that was on state aid rules. And that is an attempt by the current Conservative government to bind the hands of a future Labour government, pure and simple. Very interesting that this Tory administration is prepared to compromise its principles on divergence in order to try and screw Jeremy Corbyn. Can I ask you a bit about how you write these books? Because it is you have incredible access and people do seem keen to tell you their stories. You're a kind of confessor figure to some people. And obviously, it's, I'm assuming it's easier when there's been a disaster because people want to unburn themselves. I mean, the, the Tory election campaign was the kind of event that everyone is probably quite keen to let you know how it was someone else's fault. That is a very good description of, <laughs> uh, of how I went about writing about the general election. And same, same in a way with Brexit too. It is striking because there are often journalists who have access to one camp but not the other. But you, you're pretty even-handed in this book. But do they, do they kind of leak to you differently? Is the way that Labour spills its secrets different from the way the Tories do? That's a very interesting question. I think I think that is a is a fair observation. I think there is a degree of enthusiasm in the Conservative Party for for leaking, whereas some people in the Labour Party perhaps see it as a necessity to leak to me rather than the, it's it's business not pleasure. Whereas in the Tory Party, there's quite a lot of pleasure involved in some people um, knifing others. You know, it's pretty clear I've got slightly better Tory contacts than I have Labour contacts, but I've got. My first book, I went out of my way to try and be fair to as many people as possible, and people saw that. And And I think writing the second book, if the story in the first book about the Labour Party had been a slightly disingenuous approach to Brexit in the second book, you know, they've had a very successful general election campaign, and other people were keen to take some credit for that and to explain how it had happened. And I was keen to present a very balanced portrait and I think even a lot of people around Jeremy Corbyn who aren't necessarily fans of my newspaper or my proprietor felt that I gave them a pretty fair shake. So once you've done one, people come to you a little bit for the second one and once people saw them doing okay and selling reasonably well and establishing a narrative that other people react to and respond to, they want to have their say. I mean, politicians are a lot of things, but most of them are raging ego cases that make even big-headed journalists look like shrinking violets. So most of them are not backward about wishing to tell you how clever they've been. 
you write in the book about how social media has changed electioneering and we've talked about that quite a lot on our podcast but has it changed your job in the sense that politicians obviously have this other outlet to get their message across and many of them are some are more indiscreet than others on twitter but compared to 10 15 years ago the public has more direct access to them in some ways is it harder to ferret out the secrets in an age of more openness more transparency of the secrets buried away further than they used to be I think if I were trying to justify my existence, I would take your second point and elaborate on it. I mean, yes, it's changed the game. To some degree, journalists exist in the social media world as well. I mean, I get a lot of my information from Twitter, frankly. Most people with something interesting that they've written about or something new to say will be somewhere on social media saying it, and that's one of the ways that you can see what's going on. It's also a way of interacting with people. And my worldview and contacts have been greatly improved by interacting with journalists and activists that I would not have had any way of contacting previously. Put it bluntly, you can direct message people that you don't have a mobile phone number for and would have found it difficult to get one. You can also have quick conversations with people who explain things that you perhaps didn't understand, and that's very helpful. But going back to the first point, I think... I've been doing this job for 17 years and the advantage I've got is I know more people than the journalists who are just starting out and operating on social media and as a consequence I can dive deeper and get a bit of readout on some of the things that are happening than they can so I can see everything they're seeing and hopefully I'm being paid to drill a bit deeper too. I assume you've read Fire and Fury? I have. Do you, do you... It's a bit of a busman's holiday, really, reading Fire and Fury and wondering how mad it was going to be and how he went about, how Michael Wolfe went about doing something that was fairly similar to what I was trying to do. I did it by phoning everybody up and getting them to talk. He did it by literally sitting on a sofa in the White House. <laughs> that was going to be my question in a way. Did you recognise, because I've read it too, and um, some of it is familiar to people I'm not in politics, but I study it and talk about it and it's recognisable and some of it is off the charts I mean some of it in there are bits in your book too occasional moments but it's still the recognisable world and there are bits of Trump's White House which if true you kind of feel like you've fallen off the edge of a cliff when you're reading about it or you've disappeared down some rabbit hole did it feel like that to you were there moments where you just thought this is this is different yeah, I think so. I mean, and having covered American politics, you know, I've covered uh, three US presidential elections where the rules of the game were understood and Trump has completely subverted those. Michael Wolff has then subverted the rules of journalism. I mean, no one gets to sit on the sofa outside the Oval Office just watching what goes on. Uh, there was an occasion after my second book came out when a member of the cabinet got in touch and said, we're all having our team photo today. You should pop along because, you know, it feels reading your book like you've you're almost been sitting in the cabinet sometimes, which is obviously very flattering and amusing. But, but you, you know, Wolf but you literally <laughs> was sitting there, you know. And it's absolutely extraordinary to hear of how he went about it. I think what's really good about Fire and Fury is Wolf understands people and he understands the people around Trump and how they tolerate and enable Trump, even if they don't wholly approve of him. And I think as a character study, it's excellent. I think it... In terms of the detail, I like to think I've got a few more facts per page than he has. The other thing about it is that it is a family drama. I mean, the, the central dynamic in the book is the contest between Mr. and Mrs. Ivanka Trump and then... Jarvanka. Jarvanka. And um, Bannon, when he was around. British politics is not like that, doesn't quite have that. But family does actually play a part. I mean, in the, as I've alluded to in the Gove-Johnson 
business, but also the Camerons and the Goves. In those cases, the wives played a role. Philip May is probably a more important figure in British politics than most people appreciate, not least in keeping the show on the road. I mean, there were clearly moments where, without him, she wouldn't have made it through. I think that's right. I think after the general election setback, and I think after the party conference catastrophe, I think in both those occasions, Philip May was the only person who was anywhere near Theresa May and able to to make the argument that she should stick around. After the party conference debacle, Theresa May turned her mobile phone off for six hours and no one could get anywhere near her. And the only person who was in a room with her was her husband. And he was the guy, ultimately, who talked her into staying, I think. But the difference is that the Trump story is a story of, at some level, corruption. I mean, it's about family members not just propping their partners up and not just getting involved in the feuds, but actually wanting to get their hands on the levers of power. Unless I'm missing it, there isn't any sign of that in British politics. No, I think we revel in sometimes the incompetence and the chaos, but I think most British political journalists would say that our system is largely free of corruption and that stories about misbehaviour by ministers and business interests are pretty rare and when they come there is a recognisable process for dealing with them. You know, we have the Commissioner for Standards, we have investigations that go on. Sometimes I think people think some of the sanctions in place are not high enough. But in America, you know, nepotism seems now to be a way of life and you have to get very legalistic to do anything about it and we're all still waiting to see what the Mueller probe throws up. In this country, the checks and balances in the system appear to be doing a better job of, of controlling those impulses than the American system. I'm going to ask you one last question. We've all learned not to do predictions, but you're a journalist. I'm going to get you to do one. I just want to ask straightforwardly, so we, we talked about this a bit last week, which is that polling of Labour members showed that the big shift in their attitude from last year to this is that even last year before the election, only about a quarter of Labour members believed that Jeremy Corbyn had any chance of becoming Prime Minister. And now it's closer to three quarters. They believe, and he believes too, he said he was going to be Prime Minister by Christmas and now it's going to be next Christmas and some Christmas eventually. Do you believe that Jeremy Corbyn is going to be Prime Minister? I believe he can be, but I don't believe he will be, if you want a short answer. I think that Corbyn got very close because a lot of people didn't think he could get close. And I think there'll be a different dynamic. And even with what is without question the most catastrophically badly run, inept and uninspiring Conservative campaign I think most of us have ever seen, they still managed to get 40-odd more seats. That is not a given next time, and I think a lot of Tory MPs would like to see a different candidate offered to the electorate. But... I mean, those Labour members are right. Jeremy Corbyn absolutely, definitely can become Prime Minister. Will he ultimately? I think there are quite a lot of forces working against that if he maintains the positions that he's currently adopted. Tim Shipman's two books are All Out War, which is about Brexit, and Fallout, which is about everything that's happened since, and they are absolutely worth reading. Next week, we're talking to James Williams, who won the Nine Dots Prize, and we're going to be talking to him about the attention economy, that is, the phone in your pocket, what it's doing to your attention, but also what it's doing to your quality of life and what it's doing to politics. We're also going to be speaking soon to Diane Coyle, the economist, about how we should measure the economy. Do join us for those and do please join us again next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics.
that's absolutely right. I think Brexit, to some degree, has changed that in the Conservative Party, and there are ideological differences over Brexit, though they're primarily between the people in the Cabinet and the people not in the Cabinet, rather than... Uh, there are rows within the Cabinet. Clearly, Boris Johnson and Philip Hammond are not in the same place on the type of Brexit they would want, but they are both... Should we do that again? It sounds like we are in, 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 we are in doing Baltimore. It <laughs> yes. Um, you can dip from wherever. Let's, well, let's start at the top, because I'll probably slightly change what okay. I'm... <laughs> a, a useful siren. Um...